An Air Tindy King Air crashes on its way through the Canadian Northwest Territories. What caused this flight to end in a spinning disaster? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey, hey, hey. Hello. We have patrons to thank. Oh, we do. We have a couple. We have several new ones, I believe. I wish y'all would say something before just putting me on the spot like I this. I did not think about it until now. Thank you to Trevor for joining us on Hi, Patreon. Trevor. Welcome. We probably won't see you in the month of September because our lives are f***ing disasters. But um, Screw September. Always. Everyone. And, and October, for that matter. It's September and October. Yep, they always being pretty busy. And then November, everything opens up again. Yep. But I literally have no free time between now Yep. and November 1st. I know how that feels. Sign up for all the stuff. Yep. Patreon, newsletter. newsletter. Patreon. Yep. What year is it? <laughs> I don't know anymore. What? Okay, when, when, who are we? I don't remember. What? Okay, we are not going over trivia questions this week. That's no. next week. Correct. Just making sure. Okay. Any other housekeeping? I think that's it. Nothing particularly of note. Yep. Just that I know like there's several of you that have sent in listener stories. Yes. Thank you, we baby. have one episode we already have to record. Yes. And we'll have another one and probably one after that. Please yes. be patient. Emphasis on the no time. Yeah. Yes. These two months are f***ing horrible. <laughs> Always. Uh, and so getting extra time to do extra stuff. Yep. Not happening. We're already having to reschedule our normally scheduled stuff. Yep. Due to conflicts. So be patient. We will do them eventually. We see them. We know they're coming in. Yes. Um, Thanks, David. And Andrew and Spock. Yes. Mostly. Yep. So we, we see them. Just don't freak out when you're like, why haven't you said anything about them? We oh. will get to it. In November. <laughs> I promise. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful things will slow down. Yeah. All right. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Tindy Airlines. Air Tindy. Or sorry, Air, Air. Tindy. Yeah, you're right. Air Tindy. Flight 503. Which, by the way, I've never heard of Air Tindy before. Well, neither has pretty much anybody. Uh, thank you to Joseph for recommending this. Canada. Yes. Unless you are, like, part of the aviation community that actually knows about this, or you lived in that part of the world, you probably never knew who Air Tindy was. Is I don't know. Do they still exist? I don't know. This is pretty recent, so maybe. I feel like maybe. It was founded in 1988. And still exists. So they still exist. Okay. They have a whopping seven destinations. They are based out of Yellowknife. Yep. Yellowknife, Canada. I know. Canadia. Air, Air Tindy doesn't sound like something that would be in Canada. But it is. It's a Canadian airline. The name Tindy means the big lake or Great Slave Lake in the local native, yep, that native yep. language. Yep. Not even going to try. Uh, there are characters in that that I've never seen in my life. The names of the airports are just about as fun. Yellowknife is the easy one. This was a King Air 200. We talked about King Airs too much because normally they're not 
airline operated. But they are pretty busy aircraft. There are thousands of them out there in the world. And they are typically used for everything from, of course, private aircraft to charters to medical to small cargo operators to... I mean, they're not massive airplanes by any means. They're little little GA airplanes, but they're twin turboprops, and they're very powerful. They're very reliable. They've been around for decades, and people absolutely love them. So this is a King Air 200s, which is like the middle variant of the King Air. There's the C90, the 200, and then the 300, 350 series. So the 200 is the middle series. I don't know that it's necessarily the most common, but it is pretty common. The C90 is pretty common. The 350 is pretty common. No matter what, all of them are pretty similar. Just the smaller the number, the shorter the fuselage, and vice versa. The larger the number, the longer the fuselage. That's There's there's other little variants, but otherwise it's not vastly different. They all use this, the same engine, but with some horsepower adjustments. They're really capable airplanes, and people love them. The, the C90 being the shortest is, you know, like eight seats max. The 200 is like 10 to 12 seats max, and the 350, I think, goes up to like 15 seats. What's the size like of the King Air that I've been in? The C90. Oh, okay. Short one. Eight seats. So we're talking about a 200, the middle variant. This one had the tail number Charlie-Golf Tangle Uniform Charlie. Is Canadian. Canadian. A. Canadian A. I don't have names or ages for the crew. I couldn't find them anywhere. Even on the Wikipedia page? No, I couldn't find a Wikipedia page. There isn't one for this accident. No, there's not. It's oh. on. It's only on the Wikipedia page. It's only a Wikipedia page for the airline. Yeah, um, I found that out when I was doing the newsletter. Lovely. Yes. Okay. So no, I couldn't find names or ages anywhere. But I know they were both male. The captain had 2,762 hours total, of which 1,712 were on the King Air. So most of his hours were on the King Air. He was, I don't know, early but middle experience. I wouldn't call him an experienced. First officer, however, hmm. also male, had 566 hours total, of which 330 were on the King Air. So more than half of his hours Barely were on the King Air. new. Yeah, we'll call it newer to the industry for sure. This flight number was actually a series of six flights. Jesus. Mm -hmm. They were all quite short. They were, and are you ready for this? Because I am going to have so much fun pronouncing all of this. Is it like Upper Canadia land? Yes, very much so. It's from Yellowknife North. And Yellowknife is north. <laughs> so <laughs> we're, we're in the Yukon Territory. No. I think so. Northern Territory? Northwest Territories? I don't think it's Northwest Territories. Is it Northwest Territories? Is it? That's where Yellowknife is. Okay, then it is Northwest Territories. That's not a See, this is a part of Canada that I don't know as much about. So That's not a territory name, is it? It is. Yukon is the one that touches Alaska. So, yes, it must be the Northwest Territories. Yellowknife is the capital of the Northwest Territories. There we go. That, that tells me all I need to know, because, yes, the rest of them are all in the Northwest Territory then. Here, here, Miranda, there, there's Northwest Territories. Oh, yeah. Yellowknife. Mm -hmm. It's at the bottom of it. That's so. a weird name for a territory. Yellowknife? Uh, a province? Northwest, Northwest Territories. Northwest Territories. Yes. Weird province, yes. So. It is called a Canadian territory, though. Yes. I don't, I don't, Do, don't, don't ask me. Anyways. Yellowknife is the easy one to pronounce. They were to fly from Yellowknife to Wati Airport. 
I think, to the Wakieti Airport, to the Ikati Airport, and then back. The same thing, but reversed. Sure. So, all of these flight legs were no more than 45 minutes. To put some perspective on it, they were all very short I mean, okay. flights. They're in a King Air, so... Yeah, and they're doing pretty short hops. Yeah, I wouldn't think they'd be long flights. You'd be surprised. That King Air is capable of flying for like five hours if it wanted to, but... Why the hell would you want to take a flight in a King Air for five hours? Because people do that. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) They're great for medical transport for that exact reason, actually. But Disgusting. No, thank you. Oh, I just found a thing. Oh, okay. Headquartered in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, Air Tindy started as a private company in 1988 and was sold to Discovery Air in 2006. Hmm. The company provides scheduled cargo and charter flights as well as emergency medical evacuation flights. Air Tindy is authorized to conduct commercial aircraft operations under the following subparts of the Canadian aviation regulations. Aerial work, air taxi, commuter, and airline. It is certified to operate the King Air 200 under air taxi as part of the CARs in day and night flight visual rules and IFR conditions. Okay. There you go. I don't know what specifically they were doing with this aircraft. What I can tell you is that the two crew were the only two on board the aircraft for the accident leg, which is the first leg of the flight. I don't know if it was cargo. I don't know if it was PAX. I don't know if it was an air taxi. I don't know what it was. But what I do know is that the very last stop on this journey is a very large mining town. There's actually not much town, but if you look at it on a map, it is nothing but a massive mine next to the airport. Okay. So I have to assume it has something to do with mining. Yeah. Whatever they're doing. Workers there. Whether it be workers, whether it be, which is probably what's happening, because this is a first thing in the morning flight, by the way. So I have to imagine that, yes, this is picking up people and dropping them at work, probably, or materials, or I don't know, but whatever the case I could not figure that part out. Maybe it says somewhere. I couldn't find it. The flight crew met at the airport in Yellowknife at around 7.30 a.m. and split up the pre-flight duties of the aircraft. At 7.45 a.m., so about 15 minutes later, the aircraft was removed from the hangar and fueled for the flight. The first leg was to be 36 minutes long. All of the legs were pretty similar in length, like I said. The first leg was to be just the two crew members, nothing more. They entered the airplane, finalized the pre-flight prep, and then started the engines. The after-start checklist was begun at 8.42 a.m. in 31 seconds, so their pre-flight took quite some time, actually, if you ask me. I mean, better part of at least 45 minutes, probably. During the checklist, the first officer noted that the right-side attitude indicator, or his attitude indicator, was not yet functioning, and the captain assured the first officer that it would start working shortly. 8.44 a.m. in 15 seconds, so about... Two minutes later, a little less than, the after-start checklist was completed and the captain assured the first officer again that the attitude indicator would start working soon. Okay, but when? Like, that's great. I know you're frustrated now. That's great. Prepare to be more frustrated. That's all I have to say. 8.45 a.m., the flight began taxiing to runway 10 for departure. The captain called for the taxi checklist and it was completed normally. 8.47 a.m. and 46 seconds, the captain provided the takeoff briefing, which noted snow on the ground and icing conditions above 4,000 feet. 
Due to the snowy conditions, the crew had agreed to leave the landing gear down for five seconds after takeoff to allow snow and ice to blow off the tires and the wheels before they retracted it. Did they go get de-iced? With a King Air, you can't really. It's a little complicated. You can kind of do some de-icing, but as long as they're conscious of what the airplane was like, which it was kept in a hangar, so the skin is pretty warm. It's probably keeping the snow from building up on the airplane in the amount of time that they had had it out. As long as it's under an hour, usually it's probably fine. They also have de-icing systems on the aircraft, and that's part of the pre-flight prep is to check, make sure that it's functioning. And it was working? As far as we know. It was not a factor. Okay. No. So. Just checking. 8.48 a.m. and 15 seconds. The first officer called for the run-up checks. 8.49 a.m. and 36 seconds. The captain called for the line-up checklist, which was completed at 8.50 a.m. and 30 seconds. 20 seconds later, the air traffic controller cleared the flight for takeoff on runway 10. The flight taxied onto the runway for takeoff. And at 8.51 a.m. and 29 seconds, takeoff power was applied and the takeoff roll was commenced. During the takeoff roll, the captain asked the first officer if his attitude indicator was working yet. The first officer stated it was not. The aircraft took off at 8.51 and 50 seconds. 8.53 a.m. and 30 seconds. The after-takeoff checklist was started, which was completed at 8.53 a.m. and 39 seconds. It's about nine seconds it took to do that checklist. Some of them are pretty short, though. They're like three, four bullet points. That's it. 8.54 a.m. and six seconds, the captain suggested that the first officer tap on his attitude indicator to see if it was stuck or frozen. This still did not work. Did not help. And this is, unfortunately, pretty normal in GA when you have manual vacuum or suction gauges where there's a whole series of mechanical systems that have to make them work, and they are also mechanical indicators, not digital, that you have to sometimes tap pretty hard on the instrument to try to see if they will unstick and then work. But that didn't work. Thanks. 8.55 a.m. and 53 seconds, the flight crew discussed the inoperative right-side attitude indicator again. For the, like, fifth, sixth time? I don't know. 8.56 a.m. and 29 seconds, the 10,000-foot checklist was commenced and completed at 8.57 a.m. and 7 seconds. So they reached 10,000 feet, one would assume. 8.58 a.m. and 29 seconds, the aircraft reached the planned cruising altitude of 12,000 feet. And the captain called for the cruise checklist, which was completed. 9.02 a.m. and 23 seconds, the flight crew again attempted to troubleshoot the right side indicator, but with no success. Still, yet again. 9.05 a.m. and 40 seconds, the captain commenced the descent checklist in the approach briefing. The planned approach was to perform the RNAV approach, which is a non-precision approach, to runway 28 via the Oscar Victor Delta Oscar Mike waypoint, and then a circling approach to runway 10. We've talked about these before. So the RNAV, really, in this case, because it's non-precision, all it really does is help them get down to visual range of the airport, which we can assume that because they're deciding to do that, that the weather at the airport they're going to, which is Wati, has just enough visibility that they're able to see it without issue down at that level where they would do the circling approach around to runway 10. 9.07 a.m. and 23 seconds, the captain called for the descent and approach checklists and the flight crew worked through them. 
So it was kind of confusing because they stated that part twice, and I'm not really entirely sure why, but there are two different timestamps, and it said that he started the descent checklist, but then I think they completed it together after that at later point or something. Oh, I'm okay. not entirely sure. This part's not really clear, but it's mentioned twice, and I'm not sure why. They definitely did it. They definitely did it. 9.08 a.m. in 10 seconds while finishing the descent checklist, the flight received a radio communication from another company aircraft, so the same company, in other words, that had landed at Wati, reporting the weather and runway conditions at the airport. Flight 503 reported back their intention to land on runway 10. Pretty much a non-incident. That's all they had to say about it. The descent checklist was completed at 9.10 a.m. and 8 seconds. Four seconds later, the flight commenced their descent. 14 seconds after that, the approach checklist was completed. 9.10 a.m. and 42 seconds, which is only 20-some-odd seconds later, the first officer made a radio call to the traffic frequency for Wati while flying 26 nautical miles east of the airport at 10,800 feet. 9.11 a.m. and 1 second, the aircraft climbed briefly before descending again, which is strange, the first sign of something... Amiss. Really kind of strange. It, it climbed and then started descending again? Yes, it climbed for just a brief moment and then began descending again. Okay. 11 seconds later, the aircraft made a right turn to a heading of 340 degrees. 38 seconds later, the aircraft began a gradual left turn that progressed into a steep turn in a spiral that was never recovered. So they put themselves into a spiral stall then, right? Some way, somehow, yes. 9, 12 a.m. and 14 seconds, the Terrain Awareness and Warning System, TAWS, which is not the normal TAWS, by the way, but TAWS in this case, uh, began alarming. Stand by. Sounding out, caution, terrain. Two seconds later, it sounded... Terrain, terrain. Followed another two seconds later by pull up, pull up. Which, fun fact, um, if any of you guys have flight radar and want to turn on notifications, one of the notification sounds is terrain, terrain. And it went off on Nick's phone in the middle of the night and scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> That's hilarious. I, I've been trying all the different flight radar notifications because they have a bunch of different little options. Terrain, terrain. Pull I, up. It doesn't have pull-up. It just says terrain. Terrain. I haven't settled on any of them yet because I don't know if I super love any of them yet. But the the alarm one's kind of fun. The um, chime is fun. Bum, bum. Yeah, that one. Yeah, the bing, bong. But what I have now is like a classic 737 master caution. Oh, hell yeah. So. Sorry. That's fine. It was, it was pertinent information. Yes. Anywho, 9.12 a.m. and 21 seconds, which is only a handful of seconds later, by the way. The Taws sounded one last warning. Whoop, whoop, pull up. Three seconds later, the aircraft impacted the terrain. The aircraft was completely destroyed on impact. The emergency locator transmitter activated upon impact, as it's supposed to. You mean it doesn't need water? You don't need to pee on it? <laughs> Not in this case. <laughs> Not for no. this plane. No, this is an impact-driven ELT, which is pretty normal for most GA aircraft. Because usually you're not going to fly into an ocean. Right. And this actually ended up being a useful thing because it pointed to the general area where the accident happened. And it allowed um, military and emergency services to try to locate the aircraft. 
it took six hours, but six, mind you, they're in a very remote area. Yeah, I mean, they're in rural northern Canada. Yes, which is really, there's nothing there. There's ice. Yeah, pretty much. That's it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if not ice, then it's lakes and basically desert land. Yeah. There's not much there. There's some trees and stuff, but it's, there's not much. In, it took six hours, but six hours later, uh, the aircraft was located by a C-130. The aircraft was in a remote area and was completely destroyed, and it was confirmed that both pilots had perished in the accident. I don't really have much more on that because they didn't dive too deep into the wreckage or the accident site because, really, it just was remote and the airplane impacted hard. And, obviously, in a not-controlled situation, since they were in a spiral the whole time. So, 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 wrap, wrap. To wrap up, right? Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm getting confused with. Mm-hmm. We have a first officer whose attitude indicator isn't working, mm-hmm. which means, is that the artificial horizon? Yes. Uh-huh. Same thing. So if they started turning, mm-hmm. he if it wasn't working, he would never have known. He could not tell. Not from his However, attitude indicator. However, he is not the only one, and that is not the only artificial horizon in the cockpit. You are correct. So it makes me slightly nervous to be like, then why did the captain not, like, say something? So there are some key details that I have left out. <laughs> also, uh, the captain is also the pilot flying. Yeah, even that's though it what I was going to say. It doesn't state that explicitly, from, but everything that I got from what they say in the story, I can tell that the captain is the pilot flying. Because I was going to ask, I'm like, who is flying? Which it should be the captain if the first officer's indicator is not working. Correct. So the captain was flying. But, but I'm confused. <laughs> there are some key details that I have left out, and your confusion will get worse. Oh, great. Before it gets better? No. Our, our favorite oh, it never gets better? Our favorite term that starts with the U is part of this. Yes. Un- unknown? Uh, least favorite term. Stop. They don't know what happened? They do. Just one thing is undetermined. Okay. Anyway. This investigation was performed by the Transportation Safety Board of Canadia Land, Canada, or the TSB, as they're more commonly known. Yes. This aircraft was not equipped with, nor was it required to be equipped with, a flight data recorder. But a CV- it has CVR? Even though it wasn't required. Oh. Mm-hmm. It's actually not normal for King Airs, although I do recommend it, especially if you're doing like actual operations like this as like an airline or a charter. CDR. I think yeah. it's a good idea to have at least one or the other, if not both. Especially because, mind you, this was 2019. This is not like old olden days. We can fit this stuff into very, very small. Yeah, because you it's just like a tiny computer. Like it's yeah. not it's not a giant tape recorder like they no. used to be. No, modern day avionics, which this one wasn't a super up-to-date King Air. It was still actually pretty analog. But modern day like King Airs, they can record pretty much everything in the avionics and then you can download it onto an sd card and that's it like you haven't done that before never i can tell you anything about that anyways anyway the cbr was recovered and sent to the tsb engineering laboratory for data recovery and analysis they recovered all four channels with good quality audio upon reviewing said cbr stem interesting conversation was found in the flight prep that focused the analysis on the attitude indicator, specifically the right side attitude indicator, which was not erect when the crew was doing the after start checklist. Get your head out of the gutter. Thank you. Uh, I was going to ask, and I don't know if this company would have this, but wouldn't 
an attitude indicator be a no a go or no go item? Not necessarily. Funny you ask. Let's get to that later. Oh, okay. But why not now? <laughs> because I have I'm curious now. I... <laughs> because it's in a list of things. You bring up a good point. It is a very good point. I understand that there's two of them, which is probably why it wouldn't be on the like go or no go, but mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of important. Funnily enough, that's not actually the way in which the MEL is brought up. But we'll get to that later. Okay. All right. Furthermore, it never erected itself during the flight as the captain thought it would. As such, that left investigators with the conclusion that something was wrong with the gyro rotor. And it was not rotating at... Wow. It is not rotating. It was not rotating at the time of impact based on its damage. But also, because of the damage, they couldn't tell why it wasn't rotating. Yeah. Something was wrong with the gyro. Mm-hmm. It, nothing was wrong with the vacuum system, and they said that in flight, mm-hmm. too. And mind you, gyros spin very, very, very fast in yes. those instruments. We're talking tens of thousands of RPM. It so is... it would there would be damage if it was rotating. Right. But certain components were damaged such that they couldn't figure out why it wasn't rotating. Yeah. Right. Got it. The CBR revealed that they tried tapping on the indicator to see if it was stuck or frozen, and that didn't work. Together, they then tried to troubleshoot while the autopilot took over. Three minutes later, they started the descent checklist, and then six minutes after that, the captain's attitude indicator displayed a red gyro flag. And the autopilot disconnected. Remember the key details I left out? So now the captain's attitude indicator doesn't work. Oh... My God. So now neither one of them has an, an indicator, an an attitude indicator, which on the aircraft would be, it, it's not great. It wouldn't be horrible if they could see what, what was happening. They could not. Nope. So, so stop jumping ahead. I have a couple details first about yes. the captain's attitude there indicator. It is something that will make you mad, but continue. So according to the instruments overhaul manual, the red gyro flag pops up when any of the five following conditions exist. One, loss of primary power. I'm thinking it's not that. No, No. because the engines kept working. And everything else was still functioning. Failure of internal power supply. No. I think we're okay. The next three, I don't know. Absence of three wire inputs to pitch or roll servo. Presence of a persistent excessive error at null in pitch or roll servo. Or the absence of attitude valid signal. What was odd, though, was this gyroscope did have damage indicative of rotation at impact. But that damage was so extensive that the reason for the gyro flag being displayed could not be determined. But it just stopped working. Uh-huh. Okay. For, I don't know. No reason? Who knows? This is when the crew had an oh shit moment, because now they don't have any attitude indication and they're in IFR conditions. Yes, they are. Yeah, I was going to say the big issue is they're in IFR. They're in IFR. And, and they don't in, have instruments now. And they're in icing IFR, which is curious to me why that didn't come up. They, the, 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 the report. Did it state that the pitot heat was on? Turbulence and icing were not considered factors in this occurrence. Interesting. It gets a whole sentence. How can you prove that? I, I don't. Hold on. Turbulence is fine. But to me... The icing of the pedo tube, even if they had pedo heat on, if it failed, were they notified? Did they know? 
Because that could cause the attitude indicator to quit. Not necessarily. It shouldn't because it's gyro driven. Light icing below 4,000 feet on approach to Yellowknife. What? Is CYZF Yellowknife or the destination? That is Yellowknife, I believe. Hold on just a second. I can tell you. It being driven by a gyro means that the pedo yes, should not. Yes, yellow knife. Yes, means that the gyro sh- or the pedo heat wouldn't affect it. But and because I guess because they still had, I assume, altitude and airspeed because it didn't say anything about those not functioning. I would have to assume that the pedo heat. Yeah, worked. the pedo was working. Yeah, the pedo heat worked and the pedo was working. So uh, let's see here. Yeah, no, they don't talk about it. So I'm That's fine. I'm gonna keep going. That's fine. I was just wondering if maybe it had anything to do with the stall, but. And then a spin. The next section of the analysis delved into the crew's decision-making, starting with the initial attitude indicator failure on the right side. The captain expressed that he believed it to be temporary and that it would kick in soon. Though he said he hadn't experienced such a thing on this aircraft in the past, he probably had experienced it at some point on pneumatically operated attitude indicators. Records show that such instruments can be slow to come to life in particularly cold conditions. This is true. Though I can't find the exact temperature conditions at Yellowknife, it was snowing. Right. It was cold. So it was at least freezing temperature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Investigators point out that there are defenses in place for such instances that help in preventing disastrous outcomes, and we will go through three of them. Number one, Miranda. First defense against a uh, disaster coming from inoperative equipment. Is the minimum equipment list. Or the MEL. MEL. As you so jumped to. The MEL exists to assist flight and maintenance crews to ensure safe operation of an aircraft that has unserviceable equipment on board by saying how to operate the aircraft with such equipment being unavailable or if you're even allowed to. Yeah. The MEL was not consulted in this instance, probably because they thought the attitude indicator just needed a little time to kick in and it would become operative at some point in flight. I, okay, I would understand if they got to the runway, like before, like taxiing and all that, doing a run up, all that stuff Mm -hmm. and it not being live. But if it's not live by the time you're going to be taking off and you've tried the tapping thing and nothing works, mm-hmm. that makes me a little sketch McGetch. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I understand that. Because uh, if you've ever been in a GA airplane before, and this might be different because this is operated via charter or whatever this was, but mm-hmm. if you've been in a GA airplane that uses this kind of thing, you have to go through a whole system before you take off, including a run-up. Oh, yeah. And, and they did. I feel like that they, time would be spent. They did, but to make you mad, I don't know if you have this about that checklist point. Nope. They found that the one checklist, you might have noted that I stated with each one of the checklists that they completed, that they completed it. But there is one that I never said they completed because they didn't, and that is the run-up checklist. By the way. Why? I don't know. It specifically stated in the story that the captain called for the run-up checklist and then it wasn't done. So then why did they even get... Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So to answer your previous question, could they fly without the right attitude indicator? This states the following. It may be an operative on the right side provided a second-in-command is not required for the flight. That's not the case. Right. 
or the aircraft is not equipped with ethos or servoed electric gyroscopic pitch and bank indicator. Was this, did this have it? In this occurrence, the left side attitude indicator was an electric servo gyroscopic pitch and bank indicator. Therefore, the aircraft did not meet the MEL's requirements for dispatch. So they shouldn't have took it off. They should not have left. So I was right. You're correct. I was right. Yeah. Yeah. But there's some more things that will make you more mad. Anyway, last thing I have on the MEL. Quote, if flight crews do not use the guidance material provided in the MEL when the aircraft systems are unserviceable, there is a risk that the aircraft will be operated without systems that are critical to safe aircraft operation. End quote. Yeah, it's almost like if there's a, a gyro issue on the right side, right, I would be worried that there would be a gyro issue on the left side, even though the left side was working. And fun fact. Twasn't. Toward the end of the flight, it stopped working. Mm-hmm. So that's great. You are correct. So the second defense that is in place for such instances is the threat and error management. The TEM model is a concept that is used to help flight crews manage situations they encounter that increase the risks associated with flight, analyze the development of these situations, and outline countermeasures that would be effective in managing such things. The point is to anticipate, recognize, and recover from threats and errors. Air Tindy provided a threat reference chart for the King Air that is to be referenced in potentially risky situations. There is a picture of it on the website, and I also sent it to the group chat. Do I have to look at it? Is that what? Is that my cue? Am I supposed yes. To look at this? So the way it's organized is red is um risky. Don't go. <laughs> I like that the first thing on there is fatigue. Fatigue. <laughs> Yellow is that sketch. Consider yourself. Consider yourself. That's not actually what it means. That's my, I don't know. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. (laughs) Actually. You know what's in the yellow section? Mm Mm-hmm. Unserviceable equipment. Yep. I see that. And MELs. Cough. Cough, cough. Once again, because the crew didn't consider that the attitude indicator was unserviceable, they did not consult the TEM reference chart. No, they did not. So there's another defense mechanism out the window. And the last one we will discuss is a longtime favorite of ours. Crew Resource Management. Or CRM. The crew had received CRM training. However. Big however. However. The first officer had not yet received the practical portion of the training as a flight crew member, which contains training specifically on communication skills, problem solving, and decision making. Be it that they brought this instrument up six separate times before, during, and after takeoff tells me that their CRM was garbage? Pretty much. Several significant events were outlined that resulted in a quote-unquote undesired outcome. No, really. First off, the captain did not include the first officer in the discussion of the right side indicator fold or ask for his input before deciding to proceed with the flight. That being said, neither did the first officer offer any concern other than, hey, it's not working. Never said anything like, maybe we shouldn't go. Maybe we should check the MEL. Maybe we should check something. Nope. The crew did not distribute the increased workload on the left once the left side indicator failed, resulting in a cognitive overload for the pilot flying, aka the captain. Mm-hmm. And last, neither of the crew were able to recognize and effectively communicate to each other about the unusual attitude of the aircraft. These events resulted in a breakdown of communication, loss of situational awareness, and the aircraft entering an unsafe condition. 
So what did the captain decide to do when they lost indicators? It's a technique called partial panel flying. Also called limited panel flying, the aim of this technique is to safely control the aircraft in straight and level flight or turning by reference to flight instruments without using the attitude indicator or the heading indicator. The training for this is not required by Transport Canada or Air Tindy beyond the usual attitude recovery techniques. The captain had done partial panel flying before but hadn't for a number of years and wasn't required to do so for in instrument proficiency. Investigators found it likely that he hadn't had to demonstrate such skills since his commercial pilot test in 2006. Jeebus. That's over 10 years before. It was 13 years prior. And these skills deteriorate over time if not practiced. No kidding. As a result, his efforts were um, unsuccessful. I would say so. Given the circumstances, it's not hard to see how both crew experienced spatial disorientation. Sure, this can happen in any instrument conditions once you can't see the horizon, but now they also don't have any attitude indicators to reorient themselves. As such, the aircraft entered a right bank before entering a gentle but progressive left bank and steep descending turn, and neither crew commented on the attitude because it probably felt like level flight. Yeah. The last point investigators made was regarding the electronic flight bag, which sounds so fancy, but it's really just the iPad minis that were given to the crew by Air Tindy and had ForeFlight installed, in addition to the Garmin flight stream installed on the aircraft. Things we haven't talked too much about, because we don't normally delve into the world of GA, and these aren't usually things that are used in commercial aviation. And electronic flight bags absolutely are. Every airliner these days, the flight crews have and carry basically iPads or tablets that have electronic flight bags on them. It literally allows them to do everything. They can do all their pre-flight weather planning, um, fuel planning, load planning. It has the charts, maps. They can do everything in there, and it's a backup for all of those systems as well. And a lot of it's actually legally allowed to be used in place of both logbooks and some instruments and some charts, things like that. Like, you don't have to carry paper charts anymore because you're allowed to carry these. Instrument backup, you say? I know. So, in conjunction, these systems give them the following data on the iPad... I have four flight, and I'm quite well aware of this, and that's why it was like, oh, God. Here are the systems that they could have had access to. Pitch and roll, mm -hmm. ground speed derived from GPS, GPS derived altitude and vertical speed, horizontal situation indicator with current heading, and last but not least, in fact, most important, a synthetic view of the surrounding terrain. In other words, an artificial horizon. They could have been just fine. They could have used the iPad as their artificial horizon. Neither crew made an effort to use a synthetic view system in ForeFlight, which very well could have saved their lives. Um, if you listened to one of the more recent post episodes, um, we were talking about our trip to Portland. And when we were flying back from Keyway, Caitlin, Al, and I, um, it was smoky. Like real smoky, like low visibility smoky. Very. And guess what Al used? Mm -hmm. He used the synthetic view of surrounding terrain on ForeFlight. Yep. Because it made it a little bit safer. Whether or not, you know, I, he knows the area well. I think he trusts his instincts that it would have been fine, but he did the right thing by pulling it up anyways and just using it as a reference to make sure that he got himself out of there safely. Yep. My question would be, would they have been trained enough to know that they could have used it? I would sure hope so. I mean, beginning pilots, like, have ForeFlight, love ForeFlight, and use it for this. 
it's not really intended for I that, mean, yes. were they trained by Air Tindy to do this? I have no idea. Because I feel like if you were told that this was a thing, cool, that's awesome, that's great. Mm-hmm. But if you are in a situation where you're freaking out because, mm-hmm. you know, you're out, your artificial horizon stopped working. The company guidance probably did not direct them to use it because it's still not a legal replacement for this aircraft in this instance. However, Pilot Instinct should have said to use it, and clearly it didn't. Well, we have a, a first officer that's fairly new, mm-hmm. right, to the... But a whole- captain who's not. Well, but as we've seen before, captains can be overconfident. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could have been the fact of, like, he was freaking out. Right? I mean, pressure in the moment, I understand they didn't think of it, and that's one thing. But I'm sure they were well aware of its existence. If you have flight, you know it exists. It's a whole friggin' button on the bottom or the top or wherever they've moved it to because it changes every now and again. Air Tindy did not have a formal or documented training program in place for using the attitude and heading reference system feature of ForeFlight. A documented and formal training program on using this feature was not required because AHRS is a backup feature of ForeFlight and therefore not required by or approved according to regulations. However, the investigation determined that both the captain and first officer had been exposed to this feature on ForeFlight through video-based training about the application. Mm -hmm. So they knew about it for sure. Yeah. And that's all I got. It looks like this. Oh, yeah. That's just... It deadass just uh, has... It's just an attitude indicator. If you tilt the iPad, does it change? Uh, in this case, no. I don't think so. It has to receive attitude information usually from... The airplane? Yeah. Does that work if the gyro doesn't work? No. I don't think that's the case in this instance because it feeds that data from... An ADSB transponder, usually, or a Bluetooth device. Oh, so it's not it's not to say to that the, the iPad can't do it though. If you tell it to do it from the iPad information, it should be able to. But but you have to have a specific subscription for it to do that. Well, and, and I would hope that an airplane I don't, would no. have a specific. No. I okay. Well, that that's... for them for the airlines, yes. Yeah. That's what I got. What do you got? Should, should we just take a break? Okay. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we're back. We back. All right. There's no probable cause for this one. There are findings, and there are safety actions. So things that got did. Things that got did. That's not proper English. Don't come for me. I know. (laughs) So we'll talk about the things that got did, and we'll talk about the findings. Thank you for perpetuating the bad English. Yes. Findings as to causes and contributing factors is how this reads. So this is basically in place of the probable cause, FYI, because Canada... Because Canada. For undetermined reasons, the left side attitude indicator failed in flight. Thank you. You use the U word. Yep. They found that although just before takeoff, the crew acknowledged that the right side attitude indicator was not operative, they expected it to become operative at some point in the flight. As a result, they did not refer to the minimum equipment list and depart in and departed into instrument meteorological conditions with an inoperative attitude indicator. Which you shouldn't do, because it's on the MEL. 
Like, if it's not working by the time you're going to be taking off... Maybe stop. You should check the minimum equipment list. That would only be the smart thing to do, right? I mean, I don't know. I realize you got a place you got to be, but it's better than having both of them mm-hmm. quit on you for no reason. There are regulations and rules in place for a reason. Yeah. They found that the crew's threat and error management was not effective in mitigating the risks associated with the unserviceable right side attitude indicator. What? No, really. They found that the crew's resource management was not effective. Oh, really? Resulting in a breakdown in verbal communication, a loss of situational awareness, and the aircraft entering an unsafe condition. No, really. Yeah, for sure. They found that the captain did not have recent experience in flying partial panel. As a result, the remaining instruments were not used effectively, and the aircraft departed controlled flight and entered a spiral dive. So, describe to me again, I know Christy described it, but partial mm-hmm. panel flying, how would that would have helped? How would have that... It's literally... How would that have helped there you the go. situation? It's literally the skill of being able to fly a plane without an attitude indicator and without a heading indicator. Mm-hmm. But they had heading, right? Yeah, but yes. they didn't have attitude. Right. And so it's, it's purely just the skill of being able to achieve straight and level flight or do a controlled turn. Okay. I would say they did not possess that skill. No. And it has to be a skill. So I would say, oh, well, they should just be able to keep it going straight, right? But I've been in a plane even being able to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's hard. And, and it's it, rough. And it only takes a couple seconds of not paying attention to one of those instruments for you to suddenly be doing something you did not expect you were doing. You know, it, the wind picks up a little bit. You didn't notice the right wing picked up a little bit. Suddenly you're in a left turn. You're not paying attention to your heading, in this case, the fact that the heading is changing. It only takes a few seconds of looking at, let's say, your altitude rather than your heading before for that to suddenly be worse. And then all of a sudden it's in it's diving and spiraling and everything happened really fast. Yeah. They found that the captain and first officer likely experienced spatial disorientation. I would say so. That's usually how you end up in a spiral dive while in... Normally, yeah. In IMC. They found that once the aircraft emerged below the cloud layer at approximately 2,000 feet above the ground, the crew were unable to recover control of the aircraft in enough time and with enough altitude to avoid an impact with terrain. Findings as to risk. They found that if the flight crews do not use the guidance material provided in the minimum equipment list when aircraft systems are unserviceable... Then what's the point? There is a risk that the aircraft will be operated without systems that are critical to safe aircraft operation. That's why the MEL exists. Period. And if you don't use it, what the hell? This finding seems really unnecessary. Yeah, but I actually also quoted that finding. Yes, I know. It just seems... Unnecessary, because the MEL literally tells you that it is unsafe to operate the aircraft without that equipment. (laughs) That's the whole point. The whole point. They found that if the flight crews do not use all available resources at their disposal, a loss in situation awareness can occur, which can increase the risk of an accident. Yes. And it did. It did. And the last finding, which is listed under other findings. They found that a review of of Air Tindy's pilot training program revealed that all regulatory requirements were being met or exceeded. I would argue no. <laughs> yeah, I would argue not. Because CRM. <laughs> the program but, that the program itself was 
conforming to regulations. Sure. I would still call it deficient. I would say the individual pilot's training was deficient. Yes, but that should still be on the air operator they work for. Yes, but I understand confirming that the program itself sure. was fine sure, and within regulations. Sure. Oh, boy. That's it for the findings. Now on to the what they done did. What they done did done. Yep. I need to preface a little bit. So these are the things that changed. And it came from also the airline's internal self-audit, basically, of their systems, which good on them for doing, quite frankly. So these are specifically what the company did to better their situation. At no one's request. At no one's request after this accident. Air Tindy took the following actions. They met with employees to discuss, one, the significance of the threat and error management briefing, two, the importance of the conversation-building flow achieved when the pilot monitoring reviews threats, followed by the pilot flying, and three, the significance of using all available tools to mitigate threats, i.e. for flight. They conducted a review of the minimum equipment list on company aircraft to, one, eliminate any phrases or wording that may hinder their use by the flight crew, and two, create an individual summary document for each MEL to explain potentially unclear language. I would also say, like, they should have gone over, and maybe they did this, Mm -hmm. but even if you think it's going to work, Mm -hmm. what happens if it doesn't? Right. You still should not be allowed to take off until it does. Yeah. Like, you should not be leaving the runway with an MEL item not working. Not working. That's the whole point. That's, like, entirely the point of the MEL. Yes. So, if something's not working, even when you know it could come back online, you should double check and make sure it's not on the MEL list in case it never comes back online. You are correct. They also created a new MEL template that includes a notes section, which can be used to clarify specific terms as well as a sample journey log entry for flight crew to use as an example. They also amended the crew resource management training program and material. I would say that was a very, very big and necessary thing. They also amended the electronic flight bag or EFB training material to include the use of the synthetic vision feature. Cool! Yep. Coming to the future. Welcome to the future. Welcome to the future. They also standardized and labeled the power supply type for all attitude indicators in the company's King Air fleet. So interesting that they thought to do that, but they were like, they had all these different power supply types between the different King Airs. Which makes had. sense because that drove the MEL. That was mm-hmm. one of the conditions was mm-hmm. how it's powered. Right. So now they standardized it to all of them so that it shouldn't be It's an not issue. a question. Right. Shouldn't be an issue. They also installed a standby or third attitude indicator in all aircraft that did not have one installed. So this one in this case didn't. They had just the first officers and the captains, and then obviously when they lost both, they were disoriented. So now it, there's one in the middle. There's one in the middle, which a lot of aircraft already have this anyways. And as a matter of fact, you'll find on all airliners that they have their digital screens in front of them, which usually have the attitude indicators. But if those decide to quit there's all of a one sudden, in the middle. there's a mechanical one in the center which is good because electronics sometimes fail yep as given in this accident 
Yes. Although I don't know, this was physical. These were physical. These were mechanical the, ones. The they were mechanical ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. They they of course they need electric power to yeah. operate, but they are mechanically driven indications by the gyro. By the gyro. Yep. They also provided instrument suction covers in all aircraft to cover failed instruments and avoid distraction. So, if this instrument suddenly stopped working, they could put a little suction cover over the top of it. So you stop relying on it. So you stop relying on it and looking at it and focusing on it because they were distracted by it doing this six times, seven times over, looking at it and discussing it instead of, you know, operating. Move on with your life. Operating the aircraft. They also established life limits on all attitude indicators installed in company aircraft, which I think is also a reasonable thing to do. How old was this one? I don't know. Usually in the world of GA avionics, as long as it continues to function, you usually can continue to use it. But if they're setting life limits, it's probably not a bad idea because there's so many moving parts in this, especially, you know, the gyro. that Literally moving? Yes, that literally move, as well as the indication itself, which literally moves. There's so many things that could go wrong, and over time, they're just going to wear out, and it's not worth trying to replace all the parts and such. I mean, you can salvage them, maybe, and reuse them if they're still good, but... Ultimately, the instrument having a service life is not such a bad thing. Just prevents them from wearing out all the time. Since 2015, this attitude indicator model had been removed for unscheduled repairs 15 times. She tells you that something was wrong with it because it was just too old. Even though it continued to work over and over and over again, they got it working again. That doesn't necessarily mean it should continue to work over and over and over again. Just because it can doesn't doesn't mean you should. Right. Of those, the cause of the reported fault was not determined in five cases. Again, just because it can doesn't mean you should. So I think that was a very smart point. Just a few more of these. They also amended all aircraft simulator and flight training programs to include partial panel flying exercises. Which is really interesting yes. because that is not required by the Canada the right. Canadian Aviation Regulation Authority. Right. But them, they were being proactive and doing the right thing and saying, look, this accident happened because of this. We we can prevent this for our pilots going forward. Especially because in that region of Canada, I imagine they have, they're experiencing IMC conditions way more than yes. most. Yes. Probably. Yes. You are correct. That might just be generalizing because they're super far north. But yep. I don't know weather patterns. Don't come for me. Yep. They also relocated six standby attitude indicators in company aircraft that were not in the captain's primary field of view. So if there was a an attitude indicator, a standby attitude indicator that was just not easily accessible or in view of yeah. the captain, they moved it so that it was. Which is good. Yes. Time-consuming process, by the way, but it's a good thing. Because, like, what, what happens if, like, this is a king air, right? So. Mm-hmm. You're flying on your own. Mm-hmm. You don't have anybody with you. Your indicator goes out, and you right. have to try to look at the indicator on the other side of the yeah. plane. It's pretty far sometimes. Now that if they have one in the middle, great. And mm-hmm. if they move the other one a little closer, also great. Also, yeah. just use your EFB. Yes, that too. Use for flight. What? It, but not, I mean, not, I mean, in, in general, a general aircraft person may not be able to do that. What do you mean? Like people who don't have aren't company pilots that might not have the specific, like, uh, why can't I think? <laughs> subscription? <laughs> subscription to use sure. it. Yes, I, this is true. Yes. I, I would also go so far as to say, though, if you have 4Flight, you probably have that subscription. 
Mm, not necessarily. Not a hundred percent. Not for no. normal GA pilots. I no, because it's the difference of like a hundred dollars and like three hundred dollars a year. So it depends on the level of pilot Which you are and how much you're like. To yeah, spend. that's doable. But for some people, it's like okay, what but are you that's aviation about? in general. Yeah, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. It is. Period. Yeah, Everything that comes with it is expensive. If you don't have to spend does, an extra two hundred dollars, does the synthetic vision tilt too? Yeah, it works the same way. It's, need- it shows up on that attitude indicator the same way. It just shows you the terrain on it, and it tilts the same. So your dad pays that much for four flight. He pays the higher amount. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Gross. But it proves useful. Right? Yeah. So. I am alive. He also I'm- lives in the Pacific Northwest, where it is particularly useful. If you lived in Arizona, screw it. You don't need it. I'm you sorry. You don't know why? Because it's just hot in It's Arizona. just hot and sunny all the freaking Year time. Year around. Yeah, it doesn't matter. So, point made. The last point I don't entirely understand. Okay. They established TEM as a specific safety goal for the company. The threat and error management. Right. It's like safety management systems. Sure. I just don't understand how you can set that as a goal and not just do it. Because airline. I mean, I understand making this like a briefing point every time and making these like well understood trained training classes and things that people have to take. But I don't know what you would how you would set that as a goal. I don't know. Maybe because it's a constantly moving goalpost. The I guess so. The concept of risk management is constantly evolving. So you mm-hmm. can always have the goal of achieving the highest prestige in that. Yes. Area. But mm-hmm. you'll never fully achieve complete safety. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and there's always going without to be a, risk. Yeah. And that's fair. I don't know. Maybe that's what they were getting at. I don't know. I guess. But when you're setting safety goals, I feel like that's what you're doing anyways. Um, so when you're setting any kind of goal, you should use the acronym SMART. Mm-hmm. Specific, measurable, achievable, right, relevant, and time bound. Setting a goal of having TEM be the standard is not necessarily achievable. Right. Because that And it's not measurable. Right. So it's not a very smart goal. Fair enough. Oh, boy. We're back in high school. I know. I still use these. I don't. I have to set... Um, Kids do. I have to set annual goals for my professional development. Puke. They also put an example in here, by the way. Yes, I saw. As the uh, only appendice that's actually attached. Mm-hmm. As a finishing point, I do have to assume that this was some form of air taxi for work. And I know we already discussed this, but that's because Ikati Airport, the last stop on their mm-hmm. journey before turning around and coming back, there's no town. There's no town. Oh. There's no town. Oh. That's- Airport, mine. Airport, mine. No town. More mine. Those are all diamond mines. Cool. I want to work. No, I don't want to work. No, no you don't. Um, but at if the you airport- look up, if you just type Ekati into Google, it comes mm-hmm. up with mine, unorganized Northwest Territories, Canada. Yep. Unorganized. That's all it is. It is a mine. They were doing mine transport. That's what they were doing. That's I can got that part figured out. And as a matter of fact, at the airport in Yellowknife, there is a massive diamond cellar at the airport. Well, I would think on one so. Side. If you know that what's close to a diamond. You know what's mine. really dumb about that? We can uh, synthetically make diamonds. Yes. We should stop risking people's lives in diamond mines. Yes, but getting them authentically means something more to people who spend a lot of money on them to put them on people's fingers. Or 
necklace, necklaces, uh, necks, yes, ears. But they will usually spend more on them ankles, if it goes on their finger. Toes. To be clear, I probably do have uh, diamonds mined um, from Some, somewhere unsavory places on my engagement ring, but they're heirloom stone, so it's not my fault. And they are not the main stone. No. Yeah. I didn't want a diamond. Diamond dealer. Airport. I see. Yes. Yellow knife. Um, airport. Airport. Are you, are you curious if Air Tindy's uh, efforts were futile or not? Guess what? They had another accident. On November 1st, 2021, a Tindy twin otter en route from Yellowknife to Fort Simpson Airport ran out of fuel. Oh, That's shit. a whole different kind of issue. Oh, But it does tell me that there was still a CRM issue. And was twin otter's bigger. And was forced to make a landing on Muskeg. I don't know what that is. 14 kilometers from Fort Providence Aerodrome. All five occupants, consisting of three passengers and two pilots, survived the landing and were rescued four hours later. The investigation found that the captain incorrectly assumed that the plane was refueled in Yellowknife due to a fuel slip from three days prior being observed on the door and was interrupted before the before or during the before start checklist, resulting in a fuel quantity check being missed. Awesome. There are so many ways you could have avoided an incident with that, though. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. wow. Anyways, I don't want to dive too much deeper into it, but yeah, that's a problem. So there's that. That doesn't make me feel good. They're a really busy airline, actually, out in the Northwest, Ter- Northwest Territories, though. They are, they operate uh, lots of twin otters on the water as well as on land. They do King Airs galore. They do all sorts of things. They're busy in the Northwest Territories. I also have a list of their fleet However, there are two columns. One is number of aircraft according to Transport Canada, and the other is number of aircraft according to Air Tindy. <laughs> it's bad that they're not the same. Well, Transport Canada is going to go by what's registered to the airline. Not rent, not leased? Mm, usually it includes leased. So, so how are they different? Yep. Um, Beechcraft, Super King Air. They, according to Transport Canada, they have six. Mm-hmm. According to Air Tindy, they have at least three. <laughs> Which tells oh, me they have a bunch sitting in the dirt. Working order, yeah. Which means they have a bunch sitting in the dirt somewhere. That's what they, they still have. Today. One King Air two hundred, um, and they have three King Air two fifty. Okay. Um, they, everyone agrees they have one Cessna two hundred eight. Cool. Which can carry seven passengers. Yes. Everyone agrees that they have one de Havilland Canada DHC-3 Otter. Just a regular Otter. Turbo Otter. Yeah, it's a turbine-driven, but it's still just a single engine. Up to eight passengers, Mm -hmm. depending on cargo. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The Twin Otters, right? According to Transport Canada, they have six Twin Otters. Okay. According to Air Tindy, they have five or eight. (laughs) (laughs) Where's the three? <laughs> Why is there three aircraft difference? Why is it still different from Transport Canada? And neither one of them, yeah, neither one of them matches Transport Canada. Um, they can carry 19 passengers. And then they, according to Transport Canada, they have 11 8s. According to Air Tindy, they have five. And those are combi aircraft with mm-hmm. the capacity for 46 passengers. Mm-hmm. So those are significant. Yes, they are. And those kind of aircraft would be, when they say combi, it means literally half of the airplane is cargo, half is, and I know what you're thinking, 
aren't most aircraft that way. No, we're talking top deck where the passengers sit, half cargo, half packs. So weird. It like on, there's some 737-200s operated in Canada as well as with Alaska that are combis that are also well, they do this in 737, 700s, 200s, 400s. There's been a series of these throughout the throughout history, but the front half is cargo, and all the passengers load through the rear, and they're in the second half of the airplane. Um. Yep. That doesn't sound great for emergency purposes. It actually doesn't make a difference. Usually, they still have access to the overwing. I mean, like for communication. What changes? Crew isn't supposed to go out to the cabin, anyways. I mean, if they're acting cabin crew. Cabin crew's in the back with them. They don't go to the cargo hold. It's completely separated. There's a wall. Usually a door. There's a door on that wall. Oh, okay. around it. That makes me feel to the front. a little better. But. Anyway. Right. Anyway. There, we filled some time. Okay. So that was Ayrton D flight what? 503. 503. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you should give us a, a good rating on Spotify. Because a lot of you are listening on Spotify right yes. now. Yes. Or on Apple Podcasts. Yep. And you should like go on, on Patreon and sign up for Patreon and give us all your money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, your whole $5. Yes. Uh, and buy some merch. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Yes. Um, if you want to support us and you can't pay us money, which is okay, by the way, uh, just share us with your friends. And, you know, be like, yo, yo. Oh, also, we realized we have not chosen anyone for the giveaway for the 200th episode. We need Caitlin here to do that. Yes. Um, And she hasn't been here for the past several Oh, she wants me to run through a randomizer. So we'll do that during the post episode, and then we'll announce it on social media on Tuesday, this upcoming Tuesday. Yes. uh, And if you win, congratulations. (laughs) Yes. So by the time you've heard this, you should know who won. Yes. But. If you didn't. Thanks for your support anyway. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, check all the stuffy stuffs. Uh, and if you have questions, please let us know. Uh, I, I don't know if this got put in there, so I'm going to say it again. If you bought merchandise and it still isn't, you still don't have it, you need to let us know. Let us know. know. So we can either give you a refund or we can figure out how to reroute your order so you right. get your stuff. Right. Because there's some weird things that have happened with the print companies that print the stuff for us. Because sometimes they're just legit out and there's no other companies that right. can print that thing. And so we're like out of luck. Yeah. And so then we'd have to give you a refund. So if that happens, uh, please let us know so we can fix it. Yep. Thanks. Thanks. Other than that. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by the lovely Paige. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.